There was no evidence that Governor, that Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around in other people's elections? All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. The podcast normally covers news related to organized crime, such as cartel or mafia news, but it also has a heavy emphasis on white-collar racketeering, such as corrupt politicians and bureaucrats and corporate criminals, along with a variety of other topics. But for today's episode, this one will primarily focus on corrupt government practices and individuals. The first story involves a West Virginia State Supreme Court Justice, Alan Lawfrey. He was recently indicted on 22 counts of mail and wire fraud, witness tampering, and making false statements to federal investigators. He's facing 395 years in prison and a $5.5 million fine. Obviously, corruption is something that needs to be punished firmly, but that is obviously some overkill. So he's accused of using a government credit card and a government car for his own personal use and also taking a $32,000 desk from the state Supreme Court and bringing it to his home. Um, and in addition, once he was questioned about this, he's again accused of uh, tampering with witnesses as well. It kind of uh, elicits um, some other memories of similar types of forms of government waste. Uh, the current head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, there are a number of scandals involving him. Uh, for one, he asked for $70,000 um, to redecorate his office. The head of HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, um, he also requested $31,000 for a dining set in his office. And for those of you who remember, when he was a presidential candidate, anti-corruption was really one of his strongest platforms. He actually um, presented the idea of creating a secret agency to root out corruption with secret agents. Um, but um, as you can see, really... And that, you know, that's not the only scandal involving um, his time at HUD. The corruption is really right there, and it's, it's right there in your face. So in the case of um, Alan Lawfrey, it's really one of these examples where the cover-up is worse than the crime. Again, I think it's really reprehensible how a lot of these government officials tend to have a, you know, a high sense of entitlement. But as far as the grand scale of government fraud, waste, and abuse... This is actually fairly low on the list. And there's a really uh, relevant example that's been in the news recently. The uh, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction released a report pointing to you know, a $335 million project in Afghanistan to build a power plant. Uh, the problem is that the, the Afghan government didn't want the power plant in the first place. 
And their main reason is that they couldn't afford the fuel that was necessary to keep the plant operational. So as of now, it has been constructed, but it's only operating at about 1% capacity. Uh, so, you know, again, that's a very good indicator of what $335 million of your tax dollars can do for you. Um, so while, you know, we're on the subject of the Supreme Court, I'd actually like to talk about a recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the state of Ohio. The Supreme Court ruled in the case of um, Husted v. A. Philip Randolph Institute. Um, it upheld a law that allowed 840,000 people to be disenfran disenfranchised in their state. Um, the way it works is, if a person hasn't voted for over four years and didn't return an address confirmation notice um, from the state, they were automatically purged from the voter rolls. And again, this is a very right-leaning Supreme Court. Um, they pointed to a law known as the National Voter Registration Act. And that law says that you can't be denied the right to vote for not voting. But... Um, in this case, in Ohio, this wasn't strictly from not voting. Um, it, it had the additional caveat of a person not uh, returning an address confirmation. The thing is, you know, there's a lot of politics behind these kind of laws. Um, again, this is just legal forms of voter suppression. Our country has a long history with this. Um, it's very disappointing that the Supreme Court will come down on this side. Um, again, not not surprising, but again, very disappointing. Um, this is this is going to be an issue going forward, and uh, this is really you know again we're in the 21st century now. We don't have the gangs of New York style election fraud. What we do have is a, a serious problem with voter suppression. You guys probably remember that Trump made this. Um, outlandish claim that, you know, something like three million illegal voters voted in the presidential election. And of course, according to his logic, they all voted for Hillary. Um, and what that was was just really a, a complete distortion of a study by, uh, by Pew Research, which found that over two million people were registered to vote in two states. So Pew Research's study was just pointing to the potential for voter fraud, um, but the actual authors of that study found that there's basically next to no actual voter fraud occurring. It's just sort of showing that, that there is this potential um, for it to happen. Um, and again, Trump, he made that you know outlandish claim and actually established a presidential commission for election integrity. Again, another horrible use of our tax dollars, and it was, it was all just a sort of support his lie. And personally, I don't believe he even believes that claim. I think it's just really trolling, and it's really just brilliant uh, politics on his part, uh, because for one, there is a small percentage of Americans, you know, his really loyal base, who really do believe these outlandish claims. Uh, but for the rest of the country, what that does, it just creates this huge distraction and it takes away from all of the different and all of the cloud hanging over his head with all of these different investigations. So we just again, he gets to distract the news cycle away from from him for a few days whenever he does this stuff. And again, taxpayer dollars have to pay for it. 
Um, but just to get back to this issue of, of voter suppression, that's just one example that I'm pointing to in which there are these major distortions of the extent of voter fraud that are used as the precipice to enforce large levels of disenfranchisement. For example, there's a, a lawsuit in the state of Kansas by the ACLU, and they're suing the state to get to get back the voting rights for 35,000 people who were disenfranchised over a proof of citizenship law. And it, a lot of interesting details came out in the course of the case. Um, a particular professor who had, who had written a study claiming that there were 18,000 non-citizens uh, registered to vote in the state of Kansas. Uh, but once he was on the, on the stand and under oath, he pointed that he really only had proof of six people, six non-citizens who attempted uh, to register in their state. Uh, so basically, long story short, there was this systematic uh, method for disenfranchising voters um, in, in, in the state of Kansas there. And to get back to the original case that I was talking about, the Supreme Court case um, in Ohio. And whenever this happens, it always disproportionately affects the black and Latino community. In the state of Ohio, again, 840,000 people were affected. I think there's about 11 million people in the state. So this is this is quite substantial, particularly in a, in a swing state like Ohio. But it, again, it sets a horrible and, and terrible precedent going forward. Again, there, there are many on the right who distort this issue of voter fraud in order to create a systemic form of voter suppression. And really the best reference that I can point to you is from the investigative journalist Greg Pallast. He's done a lot of work about a program called Crosscheck. And what that is, is a system to purge voters who are um, registered in multiple states. You know, this affects a few, a few million people. Um, he's got a really brilliant um, documentary called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy that goes extensively into this issue and shows how that information is manipulated in order to unjustly uh, disenfranchise just thousands of voters. So typically, most Americans, when they think of voting and politicians, they think of the president, you know, their senator or their house representative, but most people don't think of the attorney general or the district attorney or the sheriff or their local judge, etc. They don't think of those in, in the criminal justice or law enforcement system. But what most Americans do believe is that over 75% believe that we really do need to reform our campaign finance system. And the reason why I'm talking about those subjects, and it has to do with the recent report by CBS. And it covered these lavish resorts um, that are hosted by the Republican Attorneys General Association, or RAGA is their acronym. This isn't a case of pay to play. It's more of paying for FaceTime. And what it is, lobbyists have to pay a minimum of $125,000, and then they get FaceTime with these different Republican attorney gen attorneys general. So obviously, you or I will never get that, that type of um, interaction, but money, it has a ton of influence. And according to this report, they had found that $20 million 
have been raised by that or by this organization and the donors you know were the Koch brothers the tobacco industry the NRA payday lenders my one criticism of this report they pointed out that about half as much money was raised for Democratic attorney generals but not, there was no real details into who the companies were or anything like that. Now, obviously, this Republican side of the issue deserves a lot of attention since they are getting twice as much money. But let's, I mean, $10 million is still a major issue. And I, I'd like to know who the, the companies were that were paying for that influence with, with Democratic attorneys generals. It's very important to remember that you know, attorney generals and district attorneys, they really are politicians. You know, for example, 43 states elect their attorney generals. And the influence that campaign finance has is tremendous. Again, we think of these people sort of as law enforcement officials, but at the end of the day, they're still politicians. Um, and really one of the, the most real eye-opening examples, it happened with the Harvey Weinstein allegations. It turned out that after the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance decided not to press charges against Harvey Weinstein, well then a donation to his campaign suddenly appeared, um, you know, right after that decision was made. And there's a very similar example with uh, Pam Bondi, the Attorney General in Florida, um, after she decided to to not press charges against Trump University. Well, suddenly she got a donation um, from Donald Trump. So, again, this is something that absolutely has to be monitored, and we really have to rein this in. So, obviously, in this country, corporations and unions, they have a tremendous amount of influence in the political process. But what's so disturbing is that it's not just them. It's foreign governments have a tremendous amount of influence as well. Uh, to be exact, over $4.5 million dollars was contributed to candidates, to political candidates, in the 2016 election cycle by foreign lobbyists. Um, and this has been an issue that's kind of jumped back in the news quite a bit, and it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, Paul Manafort was, um, was charged under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. But to be specific, the country of Qatar has been spending a lot of money lately to to lobby our government. In particular, they hired a former U.S. attorney, Michael Mukasey, um, who was a U.S. attorney under the George W. Bush administration. Um, the Qatari government also hired uh, the former chief of staff for Rudy Giuliani. I know that Mukasey's making, I think, 1600 bucks an hour as a lobbyist. Um, it, it's just another example of this horribly destructive revolving door between government and the private sector. Last year, the Qatari government actually handed out a $2.5 million lobbying contract to the firm of uh, former U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft. And all of this has to do with a year ago when the Trump administration labeled Qatar as a funder of terrorism, which I get there, there's obviously some truth to that. But we do have to point to the hypocrisy that uh, Trump, you know, made this major arms deal with the Saudi Arabian government. That government is really one of the top financers of, of, of terrorism as well. Another interesting point I, I might want to note is that the Qatari government hired John Ashcroft, you know, again, to, 
to reshape the the terrorism and the, the PR angle of the Qatari government. And again, this is a guy when he was the attorney general who labeled uh, Tommy Chong as a sort of weapon of terrorism when they busted him on charges for his company selling bongs on the internet. So while we're on the subject of, of foreign lobbying, there's an article I'd like to recommend for you. It's in the American Conservative. The title is How DC Lobbyists Got China's ZTE Off the Hook. You've probably heard that name quite a bit in the news lately. It's a Chinese telecom that was fined by the DOJ last year for violating sanctions with Iran and North Korea. Basically, they shipped U.S. parts and brought them to sanctioned nations. Um, but Donald Trump is aggressively working on their behalf to avoid sanctions and further uh, legal troubles here in the U.S., I mean, this article pointed out a, a ton of really relevant information that gives you a lot of sort of the inside baseball of how politics work in this country. Uh, but again, long story short, just pointing out that once you hire the right lobbyists, a lot of your problems can disappear. Uh, with politics and with lobbying, a lot of it is, it's the old adage, it's not what you know, but who you know. Um, and there was a former Trump Trump advisor hired by this lobbying firm. So I'd like to sort of transition a little bit from sort of the lobbying angle and you know talk about a little bit about police misconduct. Um, there's currently a federal grand jury, roughly 30 police officers from the Massachusetts State Police um, have been accused of committing overtime fraud. Allegedly they falsified documents um, claiming that they were working hours that they that they weren't there. This is a topic that you know I've really written quite a bit about. In fact, my first book, um, the Drug War Trillion Dollar Con Game, goes into this subject. And what I was trying there's a point I was trying to get across is that there is a financial incentive for making arrests. Obviously, police you know they have certain institutional pressures to to get their arrest stats up. But there are also financial uh, rewards other than being promoted. And this is, a, this is a dynamic which some people call collars for dollars in which police abuse overtime pay. And there are a lot of ways to do it. Um, the most basic way is really to make an arrest you know, right before your shift ends. And I mean, it can be any type of arrest. It doesn't have to be a high quality arrest, something like a vagrancy or a drug bust or a DUI. And the reason is, is while you're processing the paperwork and trying to get this, this person into the system, all that time after your shift, you're getting paid for overtime. They can also list other officers as witnesses to this potential crime so that they all get to show up to court at an off-duty hour and get overtime pay. The thing is, and in this case, um, against the Massachusetts State Police, some of them were actually making over $100,000 a year in overtime alone, not their salary plus overtime. Um, you'll see in some state police departments that the average uh, pay for a police officer is over $100,000. Again, it's not their salary. It has a lot to do with overtime pay. And I'm not saying that every city is abusing this system, but there are several where that is the case. So on a similar note, I'd like to talk about another lawsuit as well, and it's against the city of Chicago, 
in relation to their police gang database. There are a little bit under 200,000 people listed in this database, which is an extremely high number, and the lawsuit is, is making the point that several people who have nothing to do with gangs or gang culture are unjustly being put into this database. Um, for one thing, it kind of brings about memories of the COINTEL program with the FBI, where, say, political activists and all types of people were discriminated and unjustly and illegally surveilled by the government. And in this case, you know, roughly 95% of the people on the database are black or Latino. One of the things, some of the evidence in this uh, trial that they're pointing out is that 15,000 of the people in the database are over 50 years old. Um, you know, there aren't many people who truly are in the gang life who are over 50 years old. Um, but in this database, they list people, like I said, 15,000 people. Uh, there are another 2,800 who are over 60 years old in the database and another 163 who are in their 70s and 80s in the database. So, again, this is a very important lawsuit um, that you know has a lot of relevance for civil liberties and basic constitutional rights going forward. There does have to be checks and balances to protect against any sort of abuses by the government. So that's the last news story for today. Um, I try to keep this podcast, you know, very short and concise. Um, but there are several more news articles on my website. And that's also where I list the show notes. Um, I would like to tell you to, to please subscribe. Uh, over the next two weeks, I'm going to have a couple extremely interesting guests um, who are scheduled on this show. Um, if you do enjoy the podcast and like to support it, I ask that you give it a five-star rating, you know, share it with your friends. But really, the best way to support it is by going out and grabbing a copy of my three-book series, Rackets. It's about the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So lastly, I'd like to thank you for listening to the Rackets podcast. It's a big club. And you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have the license. Price is $250,000. Plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.